And so I'm asking that if you haven't been praying for these services, that you begin right now praying for these services. It's never too late. God is listening. God wants to be a part of everything that we're doing. And a lot of times we leave him out of the equation and then it becomes just a meeting. I don't want just a meeting. I don't want just to come together and, and have another service. I want a fresh encounter with the living God. Amen? Every time we come together, not just on Sunday morning. I know that we are sometimes put more emphasis on Sunday morning than on maybe on Wednesday night. And I see that by the empty pews we have this evening. But that's okay. That's okay. Listen, you're here tonight, and God is here tonight, and that's what matters. That's what matters. So thank you for being here, and I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. Please pray for these services. Now, um, I'm convinced that the preaching of the Word of God coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit is still changing hearts and changing lives. That's why we do what we do on Wednesday evenings. We just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, straight through the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do tonight. I know this to be true because God has changed my life. Amen. I took and placed my faith in the truth of what God says and who He is. And He's made a difference on the inside that has made a difference on the outside. Now, I'm not where I need to be yet. God is still changing me, and I'm convinced that if He can do it for me, He can do it for anybody. And so tonight, that's what we're going to do. Starting 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, just get as far as we can. I don't know how far we'll get this evening. Most of what we're going to do tonight is going to be introductory. I mean, we're just going to try to find out what context this book was written in because that's so very important. You've heard me say before, and I'm going to keep saying it, context is king. If you don't keep God's Word in context, then you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And we don't want to do that. We want to get a hold of what God is saying to His people in context with the context in which He said it. And so tonight I want to answer four questions so that we can get this in proper context, and this will be my four main points. First of all, I want us to see who wrote the letter. Who wrote the letter, and that's what the book of Corinthians is. It's a letter that was written to the church at Corinth. Then we're going to see to whom the letter was written, and then we're going to see when it was written, and that's important, and then we're going to see why it was written. Why did God lead the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So let's just look at the first three verses now is what we're really going to focus on. And if we get any further than that, that'll be great. If not, that's fine too. Look what it says. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. He says, verse 3, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together before we get started tonight. Father, we love you. We're so thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for the great privilege and opportunity you've given us to get into your truth tonight, your word, and see what it says for all of us, Lord, and we know that none of us are in this sanctuary tonight by accident. Nobody that is listening online tonight is listening by accident. Lord, your sovereign will has made it possible for us to be under the preaching and teaching 
of your word this evening. And I'm asking, Lord, that you give us exactly what we need from it. Lord, I'm praying that you move me completely out of the way. These folks need not hear my opinion. These folks need not hear what I have to say. But, Lord, may what is being said, what you want said, what you have led me uh, to share with your people. Lord, we need you. Without you, we can never be effective. Without your power and presence in this place, all we'll ever have is a meeting. Lord, what we need is a fresh anointing. What we need is a fresh touch from heaven tonight that will help us be what you called us to be as your people. Lord, that's what we long for. That's what we're looking for. And so, Lord, show us tonight exactly what your truth is saying to each and every one of us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and for your sake. Amen. So point number one, who wrote the letter? Well, this is really a tricky question when you think about it. Now, let me say this to you. Every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books have a dual authorship. Now, what do I mean by that when I say that every book has a dual authorship? Well, first of all, we know every book of the Bible is written by God. It is called the word of the Lord for a reason. Keep your place there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and flip over with me real quick to the book of 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I want to share with you one of my favorite verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look down with me if you will please to verse number 16. Look what the Bible tells us. All scripture. Everybody say all scripture. Not some scripture. Not most scripture. Not the scripture we like. Not the scripture we don't like, but all scripture, every bit of it, is, listen to me now, inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine. So he makes a claim here. The Bible tells us that all scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. If you believe that tonight, say amen. This is God's inspired word to you. What this means is that the Bible is God-breathed. It's God's letter, love letter for you and for me. Amen. And it says a, a few things here that we really need to take note of. First of all, it says it's profitable. How do you believe the word of God's profitable? Now, I know that I'm preaching to the Wednesday night crowd here, and if you didn't believe the word of God was profitable, you wouldn't be here this evening. But we all need to really think about what he's saying there. It's profitable for what reason? For doctrine. For doctrine. Doctrine is the, is, is the truth of who God is. Amen? The truth of who we are. The Bible tells us who God is. The Bible tells us who we are. The Bible tells us how much God loves us. The Bible tells us how much we need Him. All of that doctrine we find in the truth of God's uh, precious, powerful Word. And so the doctrine that is profitable for us is found in the Word of God. Now look what else he says. He says it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof. Now, what does it mean when it says the Bible is profitable or good for us when it comes to reproof? Reproof is when the Bible tells you what you're doing wrong. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. But very seldom can I ever pick up the Word of God and study it and read it without finding something that I'm missing the mark in. Some area in my life that I need to clean up and correct. Some area in my life that I need to grow in in some way. I mean, when I look to the Word of God and I see that the Bible says I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and I start studying that, 
and seeing what all of that means, I start seeing that I've got a whole lot of growing room in that area. God reproves me. He shows me, you know, what that is all about when I get a hold of his precious truth found in his word. It reproves me. When I look to the word of God and I see that it says that I am to love my enemy, and then I think about the enemies that I have, I see that I've got some growing room and that, listen, there's some reproof that is needing to be spoken to me coming straight from God's word. Can you say amen? When I look to the word of God and I see that it says, I'm to do unto others as I would have them do unto me, that reproves me because a lot of times I don't choose to do that. I see where I've got growing room by the reproof that comes from the word of God. Amen. Now, that, that is, that's good for you. How many of you ever heard the old um, saying, ignorance is bliss? Now, a lot of people don't want to hear the truth because if they hear the truth, then they've got to make a decision whether or not to adhere to that truth, to apply that truth. As a matter of fact, I've come to find out as a pastor, a lot of times when you tell people the truth, it don't make them glad, it makes them mad. <laughs> It don't make them happy. It makes them very angry. And so realize that when the word of God, you get a hold of it, whether it be through preaching or teaching or in your personal uh, devotion, your personal quiet time, this truth shows us what we're doing wrong so that we can find out what is right. That's the next part of this verse. It said it's proper for reproof, but also for correction. If reproof shows us what we're doing wrong in the Word of God, correction shows us how to make it right. I love that the Word of God never tells you to do anything without telling you how to do it. And so he says the, the Word of God is profitable for the believer because it shows us what we're doing right, but then it turns right around and shows us how to make it right, how do we do what we're doing wrong, but then it turns around and shows us how to make it right for correction. And then it says for instruction in righteousness. It instructs us on how to live godly lives. It instructs us on how to live in a way where we enjoy life as a gift and we don't just endure life as a burden. You know, I, I, folks, I want to tell you something. If we're ever going to find out what this gift of life is all about, we've got to get some consultation from the creator of life. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. In 1908, Henry Ford created the Model T automobile. The first one rolled off the assembly line and became mass produced in 1908 in Detroit, Michigan. Now listen to me. If I want to know how a Model T automobile is supposed to operate, who do you think I need to go speak to? Henry Ford. If I need to know how to fix, how to work on, how to correct something that's going on wrong with a Model T automobile, who do you think I need to go talk to? Henry Ford. Why? Because he's the, he's the creator of it. Well, God is the creator of life. And he's given us his word to instruct us on how to live rightly, on how to live godly, on how to live righteously. Look at the last part of this, verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So if you believe tonight 
that the word of God is profitable for you. Say amen. Yes, that's why we study it. That's why we apply it to our lives. That's why we have services like we have tonight, and that's why we're going to have a service like we're going to have Sunday morning, and every time we come together, we want to make sure that we're getting a steady diet of the truth of the Word of God. Because it's profitable for us, for me and for you. If I'm going to find out what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father, I need to get in God's Word. If I'm going to find out what it means to be a loving pastor that preaches truth, I need to get in God's Word. If I'm going to find out what it means to be an effective witness, I need to get in God's Word. If I'm going to find out what it means to be a man that's pleasing unto God in every sphere of my life, I've got to get in God's Word. And you do too. All of the Word of God is God-breathed. It's inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So it is correct to say that the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church at Corinth, was written by God the Holy Spirit. However, it's also correct to say that the letter to the church at Corinth was written by the Apostle Paul. The, church, the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, along with every other book in the Old and New Testament, has dual authorship. Inspired by God the Holy Spirit and pinned down, written down by God's men. Now, you remember who Paul is, don't you? We talk about him a lot. We just read his letter to the churches of Galatia and, and we studied through that over the last year. Paul, who, who is the apostle here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, who used to be Saul of Tarsus. You remember Paul the preacher, who used to be Paul the persecutor, amen? You remember Paul, who we know wrote 13 books of the New Testament. That is amazing to me. Every time I think about it, I don't know that Paul knew he would be writing over half the New Testament scriptures while he was writing these letters. I think he was just doing what God was leading him to do because he loved the churches that he had started by the power of the Holy Spirit and he wanted to make sure they were growing up and becoming what God wanted them to be as mature believers. But as he was penning these letters, that is just writing down what God the Holy Spirit was giving him, this became the truth of the New Testament that the church is based upon today. God used the Apostle Paul in a fantastic way. Thirteen books that he wrote. I personally believe that he wrote 14 books. I think he wrote the book of Hebrews as well. Now, you don't have to agree with that. But I'll tell you, when, Lord willing, we're going to get in the book of Hebrews before too long. And, uh, and I think that you're going to see some glaring similarities by what Paul says in Hebrews to what he has said in every other epistle that we knew, know he wrote. And so, um, I'm telling you, this man was used of God greatly. He went on three missionary journeys throughout his life. He founded, started churches by the power of the Holy Spirit everywhere he went. And he, he truly, by the power of God, this one man completely changed the Roman Empire. It's amazing how God used the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's been a man since Paul that's been used as much as he was by the Lord. I really don't. God used Paul in a fantastic way. It's amazing what he did in his life. Now, remember though, when Jesus found Paul, he was Saul. 
Not Paul the preacher, but Saul the persecutor. As a matter of fact, Saul the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, was on his way to Damascus to imprison and persecute members of the church there when the Lord Jesus Christ, by a blinding light, struck him down and saved him. Are you hearing me? And Paul went from being the foremost persecutor of the church to being the foremost preacher of the church, writing 13 books of the New Testament, three missionary journeys, and doing a work for the Lord that nobody since him has done. Now, what, I'm going to tell you what that says to me. Everybody has a past pre-Jesus. Some of you sitting in this place tonight and listening to me online, some of you are living in your past. Some of you are being drugged down by your past. Some of you are allowing your past to ruin your present and hinder your future. Let me tell you something. Listen to me clearly. When Paul was forgiven on the road to Damascus, the past was the past and should remain there. What has been put under the blood is under the blood. Stop dwelling in it. Stop living in it. Stop allowing what happened in your past to ruin what God wants to do right now and what God can do tomorrow. I'm telling you, Satan wants to keep you bogged down, depressed, discouraged, and disappointed concerning your past. I got a dear brother that I, I love with all my heart, one of my mentors, Dr. Ronnie Barefield. He always said this, I'll never forget it. He always said to us as he was teaching our class, that he would say this. He'd say, when Satan begins to remind you of your past, just remind him of his future. I like that. That's good. Why did, he, why did he say that? Because he realized, just like we all realized, pre-Jesus, we all had a past that maybe we're not proud of. All of us do. But we don't have to live there. We shouldn't live there. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Don't get, get a hold of this. Nothing wrong with glancing back at your past. That can actually be a good thing. I like to glance back from time to time. When I glance back, it humbles me. When I look back and see where I was when Jesus truly found me, when I look back and see how miserable I was, when Jesus found me. When I look back and see how that I had no peace and no purpose and didn't understand what living was all about, when, Je when I look back and see that, it humbles me. When I look back and see where he's brought me from, it humbles me. And I realize and I recognize I can no longer ever sit on my spiritual high horse and look down on anybody. Why? Because I've got a past too. I see how he forgave me. 
I see how he changed me. And so I can't look down on anybody that's got a past just like I used to have. It humbles me. Let me tell you something else it does. It makes me thankful. It makes me thankful. Folks, I am by no means perfect in any way. I've still got growing room in every area of my life. But praise God, I have seen some growth. I am seeing growth. And I know God is at work in me to perform his good will and purpose in my life. I know that. So it's okay to glance back at your past. Just don't live there. Just don't live there. Remember, by God's grace, our sins have been forgiven. The blood of Christ is enough to give you a new life as a new man or woman in Jesus. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul had a past. But God turned it around and did an amazing work in this brother's life. Nathan, if you will, please, brother, put for me on the screen Philippians 3.13. I really love how Paul puts it here. He speaks about his past in the first part of Philippians chapter 3. It'd be a good quiet time to study for you sometime this week. But then in the latter part of Philippians chapter 3, he says this in verse number 13. Watch what he says. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. And what's he saying? He, he says, I've not arrived yet. Now remember, this is the guy who's went on three missionary journeys all over the world, started all these churches, wrote over half the New Testament. This is the man who's been persecuted like no other. This is the man who stood for Jesus in good times and bad times, but he says, you know what? I have not arrived yet. I've not got to where I need to be. I've still got growing room. Now how did Paul know he still got growing room? Because he knew himself. And he could do this. Everybody do this. If you can still do that, you've got growing room, believer. I don't care if you've been saved five minutes, five years, or 50 years. If you can still take breath into your lungs, you've got growing room. If God was finished with you here, you'd already be in glory. So I've got growing room as a pastor. You've got growing room as people in the pew. We've all got growing room, and God is continually doing this work in our life, being confident that he that has begun this good work in us will perform it under the day of redemption. What he starts, he's continually working towards the end of making us just like himself. One day I will be just, as, just like Jesus when I'm in glory. But now I'm in the growing process. So are you. Amen? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars and sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. But he's still working on me. The, the rest of that little song that we sang as kids, you know what it said? Don't judge me yet. Why? Anybody remember? There's an unfinished part. Listen, God is still at work in all of us. Paul said, I've not apprehended yet. I've not arrived yet. He says, but this one thing I do, I'm going to forget those things which are behind. I like that. He said, I'm no longer going to live in my past because I believe this hindered Paul 
greatly at times in his walk with Jesus. Matter of fact, he goes on and says, I think it's in the book of, of Ephesians, he says that he's the chiefest of sinners. You may tell you what he was doing then? He was remembering those times when he was the one who held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. He was remembering those times when he was persecuting and imprisoning Christians. He was remembering those times when he was doing awful things against Jesus and his family. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to forget what's in my past because all that's been put under the blood. All that's been forgiven. I'm going to forget the bad things. But you know what else? I think he's also saying, I'm not going to live in yesterday's failures, but I'm also not going to live in yesterday's victories. I was talking to a dear pastor just the other day that I love very much, so thankful for, good friend, dear brother in Christ. And he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, brother, I know the Lord has blessed in your ministry and you ought to be thankful for that. He said, but don't live in yesterday. Look forward to the future. He said, a lot of times when we see God do something in our lives and we see God do things that only he can do, we want to live in that instead of looking forward to what God has tomorrow. How do you know God's not done? He's not done with me and he's not done with you. So we can't live in yesterday. We can't let yesterday ruin our present and hinder our future. So Paul says, I'm forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Do you see that? Paul said, I'm looking forward in faith. Now, Paul didn't only have a past, but Paul had a calling. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Let's go back and look at that. <clears throat> Verse number one, Paul, he said, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So according to what Paul says here, who called him? Jesus called him. He was called to be an apostle by God, by the Lord Jesus. Amen? Listen to me. He had a calling on his life. Let me give you a quote from my favorite writers, Dr. J. Vernon McGee concerning this verse that I absolutely love. He says, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I am where I am by the will of God. That's true. When you know that, when you've got peace in that, that you are doing what you're doing, and you are where you are by the will of God, that makes all the difference. And listen, this needs to be true of us from the pulpit to the pew. This certainly needs to be true in my life. Let me tell you why I say that. I fear that there's a lot of people today standing in pulpits who see pastoring a church, preaching the gospel as more of a profession than a calling. Now listen to me. I believe according to scripture there needs to be a calling on a man that's preaching the word of God. You need to know that you are doing what you're doing and you are where you are by the will of God. Now let me tell you what that does. That frees you up tremendously. 
Because if I know I'm doing what I'm doing, and I am where I am, because that's God's will for my life in this moment, then no matter what happens in this moment, it can't stop me. Are you hearing me? Because it's no longer up to me. Now, don't get me wrong. What I do matters. I'm not saying that. You know, being faithful and doing what God wants, I believe God favors that and puts his blessing on it. I believe that. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is, if troubles arise, but I still know I am where I am and I'm doing what I'm doing by God's will, I know God's got it. If things go great, praise the Lord, God's got it. Regardless if it's good times or it's bad times, if I'm inside God's will, I understand God's got it. And I rest in that. I rest in that. I've told you before, man, it took me a long time to realize that this is not my church. Do you know that? I mean, when I first started pastoring, the Lord first called me to preach and put me in a church. You can ask my wife. I would, I would get almost physically sick worrying about everything that would happen in the church because I realized the responsibility that a pastor had. I mean, I see that in the Word of God. I realized that I'm going to give an account for whatever goes on and whatever church God gives me to be the under-shepherd to. He's the good shepherd. The pastor's supposed to be the under-shepherd. If you believe that, say amen. According to the book of 1 Peter, that's how this is supposed to work. So I understand that I'm going to have to give an account. And that would almost make me physically sick when things didn't go right or people leave the church, break your heart. I mean, just stuff didn't happen like you think it ought to happen or as quickly as you think it ought ought to happen. It would just... It would just eat me up inside. And then God revealed to me something that really set me free. This is not my church. It's his. It's his. And if I know I'm here in the center of his will doing what he wills me to do and I am where he wills me to be, then I just trust in him and be faithful to what he's called me to be. Let me tell you something else God showed me. God does not call me to be successful. God calls me to be faithful. Let him take care of the rest. Now, that don't just work for those in the pulpit. That works for those in the pew too. Can you honestly say that right now You are doing what you're doing and you are where you are by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to be honest. I can honestly say tonight, I know I am where I am. And I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I was just, just the last two weeks, I've had a whole lot of thoughts about my future and, you know, what I'm going to do from here and, What's going to happen in the next few years? And, 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 and I've, I've rolled a lot of things around up in my head. And I've done a lot of praying. And I've done a lot of thinking. And you know what God keeps bringing me back to? What did I call you to? 
I, I've drove my wife crazy over this stuff. You know, I, we sit up talking late at night, and I, I'm going to do this, honey, or I'm going to do that. And I, th- I feel like I want to go try this right here. And she'll say, well, hey, whatever you feel we need to do, she's such a good woman. Whatever you think we need to do, I'm with you. I'm going to support you. Let's pray about it and see what God wants. And I kept praying about it. And it all kept coming back. What did I call you to? If I can't do, if I can't do what God's called me to, it don't matter what else I do. Are you getting a hold of this? Folks, that's not just true for me. That's true for you. Paul had a calling. And the calling made all the difference. It's amazing. So, according to what verse 1 says, Paul is the author of the letter to the church at Corinth. And we certainly know God the Holy Spirit is the author to the letter of the church at Corinth. It's a dual authorship. Number two, to whom was the letter written? Well, the letter was written, according to verse 2, to the church at Corinth. Look what it says there. Um, Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so it's written to the church, the believers, the blood bought, the born again, those who have been washed and sanctified in the blood of Jesus and called to live holy lives. That's what that's talking about. We'll, we're going to get more into that next week and we'll come back to it at, the, at that time. But tonight I just really want you to see who the church of Corinth is, um, what the city of Corinth is, and what all of this means. Now, there's three things that I really want to bring out this evening concerning the church at Corinth. First of all, we know according to the first book of 1 Corinthians and also the book of 2 Corinthians and history itself that the church at Corinth was a defiled church. A defiled church. It was defiled by the world. How many of you understand that the church is supposed to be the light of the darkness? Let me, let me say that again because you had to miss that. The church is supposed to be the light in the darkness. <laughs> We're supposed to be Christ-like in all manner of conversation. We're supposed to put on Jesus and be what God wants us to be on Sunday morning and on Monday morning. But now, listen to me. The church at Corinth had become defiled by their own sinful ways, and it began to be where they were looking more like the world than the world was looking like the church. They were not having the influence God had saved them to have there in the city of Corinth. And, and there's, a, there's a big reason for that. Corinth, according to um, um, Warren Wiersbe, was the sin center for the Roman Empire in Paul's day. Every vice and immoral thing, every worldly pleasure you could imagine could be found in Corinth. As a matter of fact, if you were known as a Corinthian, um, then that was not a very positive thing. It was a center for pagan worship. Uh, the pagan worship there was to the goddess Aphrodite. Um, there was a temple there, and in that temple, there were over a thousand priestesses that were performing the worship to Aphrodite. Now, if any of you know anything about uh, the Greeks and the Romans, the Greek goddess was Aphrodite, the Roman goddess was Venus. Now, listen to me. This was the goddess of sex, the goddess of love. And so all in the world these priestesses were that were serving in this temple 
were, uh, were, were prostitutes. And so religion in Corinth was sex. Now, you're going to see as we study on into this that Paul has to deal with sexual immorality inside the church in a very big way. There was some immoral things going on sexually in the church that was influenced by the world that was around it. So do you see that the defilement of the world was brought into the church and was hindering what God wanted to do? Now, what's true in that day is certainly true today. You're talking about a relevant book for where we are right now in the church of modern day. Man, this is relevant and it's real for us. It really is. Let me just go ahead and say something. Sexual immorality is nothing to wink at. All right? If God said it's wrong, it's still wrong. Do you know adultery is wrong? It, folks, listen to me. I know today it's been popularized and, and you've got all of these shows about swapping wives and, and if you're watching that trash, turn it off. That's ridiculous. We've got all kind of stuff going on now that the world is really promoting and putting out there that is normal and it's not normal. That's not what God has said things are to be like. Adultery is still wrong. Let me, let me say this. Fornication is still wrong. Any type of sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage is still wrong. I know that we've got the bachelor and the bachelorette and we're out there promoting these young women sleeping around with 20 men or a young man sleeping around with 20 women. And it's one of the top grossing shows of all time in reality TV. And people are loving that. But it's still wrong according to what God says. How can we ever expect our young ladies to live like godly young women, women when we are allowing that trash in our home? It's wrong. Or young men, for that case. Either way, it's time as the people of God that we make a stand. Let me say something else. Homosexuality is wrong. Now let me tell you what a lot of times will happen, though. We'll really hammer on that. We just can't understand it. And that just makes us sick, and rightly so. Does me too. I don't understand it, and it bothers me. And I'll be against that, but let me tell you this now. Pornography's wrong too. That's sexually immoral. And, and we'll say, well, that's just harmless fun, and boys will be boys. Let me tell you something. That has probably ruined more lives than homosexuality ever will. I'm telling you, if you don't believe it, if you don't believe it, listen to some of the people that I've counseled with over the years as husbands and wives whose marriage has been ruined because of pornography. 
whose families have been ruined because of pornography. It's amazing that we'll hate sins that don't look like ours. We'll hate adultery or we'll hate fornication or we'll hate homosexuality, but sometimes we'll coddle our sin because it's not as bad as everybody else's. Yes, it is. And it's running rampant in the church. So listen to me, folks. This is truth that has been said. But this is truth God is saying. Amen? This was a defiled church and it was a divided church. We're going to see next week that there were about four different factions, four different groups that were all competing for leadership roles inside this church and it was tearing it apart. Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And... um. He's right, and that's what was happening at the church at Corinth. Because it was a defiled church, because it was a divided church, it was also a disgraced church. Disgraced because it had lost its power. Folks, if we don't look any different than the world looks, then we have no power in preaching our message. We have no power in lighting the way if we look like the darkness. Does it make sense to you? That's what was happening in Corinth. They were disgraced. Um, I work for the highway department, so I ride all over the state of Alabama, pretty much everywhere. A few years ago, I went down south Alabama, way down south to uh, Camden, um, Baldwin County. was working down in there. And I saw something uh, out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, out in the sticks um, I, that I'd never saw before. I rode by this church, and I had to turn around and make sure I seen what I saw. I saw a church sign that said the church at Corinth. And I wheeled around, come back and looked. Yeah, sure enough, that's what it said, the church at Corinth. Now, I understand somebody naming their church the church at Ephesus. Boy, you're talking about a uh, powerful group of believers, the church at Ephesus. I see that. I've seen people that's named their church um, Mount Carmel, I think that's a great name. Mount Carmel, you remember, is where Elijah prayed down the fire of God and God got the victory over the prophets of Baal. I like that. I like Mount Zion. That's a fantastic name. We're going to get more into that too. I, I want to preach on that, you know, how, how that, what that really means and what that should mean for all of us. All of that's good, but I've never in my life heard a church named the church at Corinth. Folks, there's a reason for that. If I were going to start a church, I would not name it the church at Corinth. It was a disgraced church because it was divided, because it was defiled. So that's to whom it was written. When was it written? About A.D. 55 or through A.D. 57. Most people believe it's probably A.D. 57. It was written on Paul's third missionary journey. The church at Corinth was founded on his second 
missionary, missionary journey. And if you want to read an account of the 18 months that Paul spent at the church in Corinth, you need to look up Acts 18, 1 through 18. And you're going to see the account of what happened when he got there and went and preached in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. There was a riot. That's what always happened. Paul would go into a place and he'd always preach at the synagogue. Then they'd throw him out of the synagogue, try to kill him. And then God do a work, start a church. I mean, it's amazing how that happened over and over again. But that's what happened at Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 18, 1 through 18. And so when Paul came through on his third missionary journey, while he was at Ephesus, he wrote back to Corinth. Okay? So that's what we're seeing in this, in this letter. That's when it was written. And, and why was it written? Well, it's really divided into two different sections. Chapters 1 through 6 is reproof. reproof. Like we said before, the Word of God is profitable for reproof, showing you what you've done wrong. But then, uh, chapters 7 through 16, it gives us instruction on how to live rightly. Now, what I love, even though these believers had gotten way, 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 way far away from God's purpose and plan, man, God still loved them. And there were some true believers there who really did love Jesus that just got out and left field on some things. Now, listen to me. Do you realize tonight that the grace that saves you keeps you? Do you hear me? Do you know that God does not give up on his children? Do you know he's gracious and he's good and he's loving and he's a father that's ready to do for you what needs doing? That's what I see in the book of Corinthians. It's amazing. God doesn't give up on his people. So that's why it is written. Any comments or questions before we close? Sothenus. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I may not be. But I believe that is the man who came from Corinth to Ephesus to meet with Paul. And then after he told Paul all the stuff that was going on in Corinth that he was concerned about, Paul sat down by the power of the Holy Spirit and wrote this letter and then sent it back with Sothenus and said, you give them this. Any others? Any prayer requests tonight?